This is AutoLine This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode. Thanks for joining us on AutoLine This Week. Today's topic, how do you sell more cars, more electric cars to American consumers? Automakers are pouring billions of dollars into developing EVs. So far, sales haven't really gone much of anywhere. Last year, electric car sales only accounted for 1.6% of all the new vehicles that were sold. Even if you add in plug-in hybrids, they were only 0.4%. Clearly, something's got to be done to get sales going even more than where they are right now. And we're going to get to some of the bottom of how to do that because my special guests today include Tim Jackson. He's the president and CEO of the Colorado Auto Dealers Association. And we've also got Andrew Daga, the chairman and CEO of Momentum Dynamics, which is a company that's come up with a very clever way of how to recharge electric cars. So Andy, Tim, great to have the both of you on the show today. Pleasure to be on. Always good to be on AutoLine, my favorite show, John. (laughs) Thanks for that, Tim. And and let me start with you. You represent all kinds of car dealers in the state of Colorado. What's it going to take for them to start selling a lot more electric cars? You know, in our association, John, we were green before green was cool. We were doing a green car convoy and a green car parade all over the state of Colorado annually ahead of the Denver Auto Show, even before electric vehicles came out. So when the electric vehicle started hitting the showrooms, we started adding those to the Denver Auto Show with an electric car pavilion. And I've literally, and the association here, we have literally hosted over 200 electric car events promoting uh, the migration to EVs. Now, as you said in your uh, introduction, the automakers are spending and spending billions to get these cars on the road, and they're going to be pretty cool. Uh, We just added the new Mustang Mach-E to our fleet, and that's a very cool car. That We got the first one on the ground in Colorado. There's a lot more to come, and I think it's going to be product that's going to win the day on EVs if EVs make their migration to popularity. Yeah, great point. We need a lot more models than they are on the way, but what do you think, Andy? What's it going to take to get people to buy more of them? We have to add a feature that has not been necessary in the past with gasoline-type vehicles, and that's charging infrastructure. Charging infrastructure has a crucial role to play in improving the experience of owning an electric vehicle. It has to do with range extension and automating the process of energy delivery. If you can automate those, uh, the, the process of energy delivery and billing for energy, you make it a background operation that no one ever thinks about, with the idea that owning an electric vehicle is a superior user experience than owning an internal combustion engine vehicle. When people begin to realize that, and also when they see that it is affecting the fleet world of electric vehicles, not just the passenger vehicle world, you will see an accelerated adoption and a a geometric growth curve. Uh, Look, later in the show, I want to get into the specific technology that you've got, but sticking with you for the moment, Andy, who's going to pay for all this? We need probably 10 times, maybe even more than that, of the public electric charging stations that are out there right now. Well, first of all, we need many more public charging stations than people originally figured. The idea that all charging would happen at home is simply not going to happen. 
the utilities can't tolerate it and there aren't enough people with single family home garages to support the entire population. That's true in the United States, it's true across Europe, and it's even worse in Asia. So we need millions of par- public charging locations that can be shared and and receive high utilization rates. Right now, what we see for charging infrastructure is less than 5% utilization for a very expensive piece of equipment. So to your question, I believe the utility companies are going to dive into this. They are going to use their capital assets their utility easements in the street, and their ability to uh, resell energy, according to their regulatory rules, as the primary movers of the market and own the infrastructure that charges the vehicles. Not entirely, but largely. Yeah, no, good point. Tim, what do you think about charging stations at car dealerships? I know some automakers, Porsche notably, is making its dealers invest a lot of money. Maybe you can get into some of those details. But is that the right place to put them? I mean, do people go to the car dealer to charge their car or do they do it someplace more convenient to them? Well, I agree with Andy, and that's a good question, John, but I agree with Andy. We have to have them everywhere, which means we also have to have them, of course, at dealerships. The dealerships are ready. The dealerships have already added the charging stations for the most part. They've added tools, techs, equipment, training. They've made the infrastructure investment. New car dealers are ready for the cars. Let's bring on the cars. I also agree with Andy on the uh, charging stations in general. And that was a point that I didn't make earlier that I want to make now. And that is we added charging stations. We were the first probably dealer association in the country because uh, with charging stations in front of our building, 20 of our parking spots, um, uh, we, we have 20 parking spots dedicated to the building, but four of those are electrified. So they're available 24-7, 365 for recharging cars. Uh, Andy makes a really good point on making the charging available. We had a dinner meeting since I talked to you last yesterday, John. We had a dinner meeting yesterday with the Colorado State Senator who's on the Joint Budget Committee here. And he just uh, let us know we we knew of 62 million dollars of infrastructure investment in charging stations through the v, what is known as the VW settlement. But he told us last night it's actually going to be another 160 million on top of that. So um, and where the, those independent charging stations that Andy's talking about are going to be important are really, I think, metro areas where there's apartments and not even where the people don't even park their car in the garage. They're parking it on the street overnight. They're going to need charging stations to go to because um, there's no, there's not going to be any place for them to charge in their garage because they don't even have a garage. Yeah. Andy, uh, sorry, you were going to say something. Well, we have to be careful because many of these buildings, these legacy buildings do not have sufficient power in the garage area of the building, and they have to be completely rewired. They, they may even need a substation installed if you have hundreds of vehicles in a very large garage that have to charge simultaneously. So the, the power infrastructure has, has not been fully considered in many of these instances, and people are, you know, they're, they're, they're wrestling with these questions and issues. Um, what I think makes sense is to look at a distributed model of charging And much to Tim's point, we need them everywhere. It's not one or the other. It's everywhere. And if you want to pull business into your retail establishment, and we all hope that our retail establishments recover and go back into business, they need to attract people and charging needs to fit into people's lifestyle. Charging should not be a dedicated event. 
Charging should be a background event. In other words, when you go to the supermarket or the convenience store or get a haircut or any other a number of other things that do, there are convenience markets for a reason. People go to convenience markets, and when they go in, they go in for 15 minutes or less. In that 15 minutes, we need to add 50 to 100 miles of new range to the vehicle in a way that the driver doesn't even ex experience. And if you do that, that's actually easier than filling up with gas. Remember, the gas is the loss leader to bring people into convenience markets. Think of that being expanded tenfold to all the other brick-and-mortar retailers. That's a good yeah. point. So, Andy, uh, are retailers like that, you know, little marts and uh, gas stations approaching your company for the technology that you've got? Without mentioning any names, I can tell you virtually every one of them. Okay, well, explain, you know, because you have inductive charging. People right. do not have to plug into their car. That's correct. You, you take it from there. You explain it. Well, you know, plug-in charging is really an incremental extension of plugging in your toaster and plugging in your TV and plugging in everything else like your hairdryer. Those things are appropriate to plug in. But a car is a 5,000-pound moving vehicle. It needs mobility. It's not supposed to be plugged in. It's not supposed to be cabled. And think about the miles, hundreds of miles of cables in aggregate that we would need to install to plug all of these vehicles in when you're talking about 255 million registered vehicles just in the United States. Eventually, over time, we're going to see a gradual replacement of that fleet with electric vehicles. That's the objective. And to get to the economies of scale that the automakers need to keep the price low enough, they've got to produce in those kinds of numbers. So we need many more and, and ubiquitously located charging locations, but automating the charging experience takes the human being out of the loop. So whether it's a taxi or a passenger vehicle or any other vehicle, autonomous or manually driven, automatic charging means charging becomes a non-experience. And that fits it into the model that I was expressing earlier. Yeah. So with induction charging, you, you just drive over a mat or an right. area where you've got the inductor. Or I'm not even sure if I'm using the right technology no, terminology true. here. Right. It, it, it's absolutely right. It's an inductor. There's there's a pad in the ground and there's a, a there are receiver pad on the vehicle. It's a very simple device. It's been integrated into multiple passenger vehicles in Europe already, and they're operating today. They've been put into buses and trucks. So the integration into the vehicle is actually much simpler than people realize. It works with extremely high efficiency. There are no cables, and we transmit using a magnetic field energy from the ground to the vehicle very, very safely. And that passes through ice, water, snow. It doesn't matter if there's a puddle on the ground. If there's no snowplow in the area, the snowplow can push past it without a problem, but we don't care if there's snow there or not. So we want to get rid of the idea that you have to plug in. Unfortunately, we're living in a world where the icon image of plug-in, or I should say of electric vehicles, is a plug-in device. I don't think that's going to be the case in three years. Hmm. Very interesting. Tim, let me ask you, uh, Cadillac, you know, is going to go all electric. They've set the goal, I think, by 2030, less than a decade away. They want a full electric lineup. But about 170, 180 of their dealers, about 20 percent of them, said, no, thank you. I don't want to make the, the investment. It, it, do you anticipate that might be a problem with other brands as they go the electric route? Well, I think even with Cadillac, it was the exception versus the rule. 
Most of those were small rural area stores that would probably be the last to electrify. But uh, that Cadillac Lyric is going to be an amazing vehicle too, by the way. If it would have been out first, it, we'd have probably added that to the fleet first. There's just an amazing plethora of product coming. And a vast majority of the dealers uh, that are uh, futuristic and, and wanting to serve their customers, they know it's the uh, industry is electrifying. So they have to electrify with it. And, and they are doing that. They're making the financial commitment. It's averaging $200,000 to $400,000 per store. But keep in mind that those stores, those dealerships, are already investment factors of twenty to $24 million. So that's on top of their initial investment. It really pales by comparison to the initial investment. But dealers are prepared. The problem on this is not dealers. What we have to do is get consumers. The consumer, we don't win the electrification battle until consumers buy in. And we don't get consumers to buy in until we address these range issues. Uh, that first and foremost is longer range on the car to begin with. Well, let me even back up. The first problem as we say it is the price point. So we need, there's been the promise of parity in pricing between electrified and uh, the ICE. We haven't got to that point yet, and uh, I don't see it in the in the in the short term horizon. So we need to get to that price parity, number one, because there, if there's a price differential of anywhere from ten to fifteen thousand dollars on the on each car, um, we know where the consumers, the vast majority of them, are going. Second is range or range anxiety. As as the technology improves, uh, so will the range, and that will address some of the range and and uh, recharging issues third is where the charging stations are located will there be one there for me and available when i get to my destination and fourth is the charging time and again i think we can fix that with technology there's technically a fifth and that we saw in texas last week or Colorado and maybe Michigan last week, and that is the really cold or the really hot temperatures because there can be a depreciation or deterioration of range uh, due to ultra hot, ultra high or ultra low temperatures. And uh, so I'd say those are the five uh, key issues that we need to address to really uh, uh, get past, get beyond, so that we can get consumers much more attracted to electrified models. So I agree with everything that Jim just said, and I want to add a few additional uh, points to that. On this last issue of cold temperatures, could not agree more. And if you, if you really want to see where that's a problem, look at the electric bus, the transit buses that are being put into service today. Massive batteries. These buses cannot make the driving range that a diesel bus can do, and they have to. And they cost twice as much money to buy a di an electric bus than a diesel bus. And that's the reality as, as we live in the world today. That'll change over time. But everybody is, let's not forget, there's a, a push on the market coming from the regulatory side. No, uh, Understanding that cars, trucks, and buses are not designed for the U.S. market anymore like we, they used to be and then exported. They are designed for the world market. And designing for the world market means that Europe has the predominant position in determining what vehicles have to be, uh, what they have to how they have to perform. They're then, you know, homologated into U.S. service, but they still are basically the same vehicle with different names. Now, having said that, you can't solve the problem of range by adding more battery to a vehicle. We know one automaker that spends 
more than $20,000 just on the battery of a new vehicle. That's part of their bomb. It's the single most expensive part of the vehicle. And they, they'd love to cut that in half because they can't bring their, ve- their vehicle pr- price point down. So the infrastructure of charging can contribute to the range of the vehicle and also to its bad cold weather performance by doing more frequent charging. If you're going to ask people to f- charge more frequently, it's like asking asking them to go to the gas station and filling up every day. They don't like to fill up in the first place once a week. So what we got to do is take the fill-up experience out of the picture completely, automate the charging experience, and just add 50 miles, 100 miles here, there, and sip energy rather than guzzle energy as you move through your, your life experience with the vehicle. And the only time range then becomes a problem is when you're taking a long distance trip, driving from New York to Florida, that's tolerable to make a rest stop and charge while you're at the rest stop. But for everyday neighborhood or mega neighborhood driving within a hundred miles of your home, there really is not a, lim- a limitation on range if you sip the energy along the way at the places where you stop. Yeah, great points. Tim, uh, you know, if dealers are investing two hundred thousand to four hundred thousand dollars to be able to sell electric cars, I mean, they're all in. They got a lot of skin in the game. But as you know, you've seen the reports in the media amongst EV enthusiasts that ah, dealers don't want to sell electric cars. There's stories of people who went in to buy an electric, and the salesperson they claim directed them to something else, telling them they would not be there. But you're telling me dealers are ready to sell, so. Is there a learning part on the part of the sales force, or is this just an urban legend? You hit it at the very end. It is an urban legend. It is an an issue that we as an industry have to overcome, because I can assure you, dealers want to sell what consumers want to buy, always have and always will. They want to be where consumers are. But the fact that that penetration rate, as you point out, pointed to in the numbers at the start of the program is really low. That means that if if only uh, 1.8% is, is electric cars, that means that 98.2% are ICE cars or some version. I can give you the numbers here in Colorado are a little better than that. And maybe it's because of the proactive nature of the dealers here. And maybe it's of the proactive nature of our customers as well. So in Colorado, we're at uh, 3.6% um, on on uh, that's the BEVs, battery electric and PHEV together. And the PHEV is 1% of that. I think that numbers, your number nationally was four tenths of 1%. So it's one, 1% here. And then we have another 4% of the pure hybrids. That doesn't count into the California uh, definition of electric cars, but that's the, uh, the, the pure hybrid. They don't have a cord, so they're not going to plug in at Andy or my charging stations, but they're still very good cars and, and very efficient cars. Now that's together is 8% of the market. So we've moved from zero to 8% over the last 20 years. And now we've got to move from eight to a hundred percent over the next 11 or 12 years to get to the numbers that the regulators are calling for. But, and we've mentioned, you mentioned a couple of brands. I mentioned one Ford is out there with their Mustang. We know they're coming with the F-150 in a plug-in hybrid, by the way, it's helping out quite a bit in the state of Texas along the way where the other pure electric is working out so well there. And then uh, 
the um, General Motors is going all electrified fleet, or that's the goal by 2035. At this dinner I told you about last night, the Audi dealer said, we've got 30 electrify, electric models coming by 2035. A VW dealer at the same meeting is anticipating the VW ID4. And of course, we know uh, now Stellantis is uh, former FCA is electrifying. They're all electrifying. Toyota is going to have you know, an electric SUV, an electric car in the next year or two. Uh, basically, um, and Mercedes and BMW and Mini and Audi and um, Infiniti and uh, Nissan will come with their SUV uh, later this year or early next year. So that is, it's that product, uh, that really cascading uh, product launches that are coming that are really exciting dealers. And first and foremost, I think they're exciting consumers. And let me give you a, a data point that I found interesting from the VW dealer. This VW dealer is very, um, let's say, internet savvy and is tracking the uh, interest of coming into his dealership. He doesn't have any ID4s in his showroom yet. He will have in another month. But already the ID4 is getting more internet interest and inquiries through his Google Analytics searches than all of his other products combined. That says a lot for the ID4. And they have actually nearly 100 pre-sold. Another VW dealer at the same meeting has another pre-sold as well. So, um, uh, and, and as we know, the Mustang Mach-E is, is sold out and, and uh, as is the hybrid um, pickup for the first initial orders. Andy, you're obviously very plugged in on this whole EV thing. What, what do you think uh, it's going to take on uh, in terms of incentives? You know, when I look at China, boy, electric car sales are booming. Well, they've got mega incentives there. Same in Europe. In fact, Norway, the, the, the highest adoption rate of any country in the world, as we know from the GM ads, no way, Norway, uh, it's cheaper to buy an electric than a car with an internal combustion engine because of the way that they've they've gamed the taxes and everything like that. But in the United States, how important is it to get more incentives on these cars? Well, subsidies and tax breaks are basically kickstarters to get a new movement rolling along. Forgive the pun. Um, what we need to understand is that subsidies are not sustainable over a long period of time. So they'll get things started. And then you'll begin to see the adoption curve begin to swing into an S-curve, and then you're, you're gone. And to Tim's point, we've got a push-pull situation going on here. The automakers are pushing brand, model after model, brand after brand into the market space. And at the same time, if I recall correctly, the average age of a, of a registered vehicle in the United States is something like 13 years. That's correct. And... That means people have held on to their vehicles for a long time, and I suspect that there is a massive latent demand to move to new vehicles, and they're waiting to see what's going to come out next. They've all been hearing about Tesla, and if you talk to a Tesla owner almost universally, they'll tell you, I'm never going back to another gasoline vehicle ever again. They love the experience. The experience is actually superior to anything they've ever done before. That's the pull, all right? That's where you'll see... The, the, the consumer asking for this. And there are lower costs associated with the life cycle. So I think you're going to start, people start thinking about what is the cost per month for the life of my vehicle rather than what is the purchase price of the vehicle. 
And if, if that's the case, my fuel costs may be lower. By the way, the utility companies are beginning to introduce special rates for electric vehicles, particularly in the fleet side of things. And we're in very close communication with the utility companies. They want to encourage, and the, the federal government is encouraging the utilities, to break the rate structure for electric vehicle users so they don't get hit with demand charges. If you take demand charges out of the picture, that's the equivalent of massive subsidy reductions or subsidy infusions. So um, those kinds of things are going to propel this market much faster. I think of this as the single biggest transformation of two of the largest industries in human history, transportation and energy. Those two together are turning each other upside down and happening at the same time. We're talking about trillions of dollars every year in refocused assets and opportunities. That's what we're a part of here. That's how big this is. Yeah. We're, we're getting down to the, the last couple of minutes here, Tim. Uh, your thoughts on subsidies. As, as you well know, General Motors and Tesla have run out of the subsidies that were allocated to all automakers. How important do you think it might be for a Biden administration to bring them back for GM and Tesla and extend them for others? Well, I do think uh, I do think incentives are incredibly important. And uh, in case in point, I said Colorado's numbers are better than the nation as a whole. Colorado has put more money on the hood of these cars than most other states. Historically, we've had incentives on electrification for the last 17 years, literally. And oh, by the way, uh, I totally agree with Andy. So far, it's all been government push. We don't win this battle until we get consumer pull. And he took the words right out of my mouth. I'll, I'll uh, restate them and redefine them. But um, we, have to, we have to capture the imagination of the consumer if we want to sell EVs in a high volume. And, and Andy's also right in bringing up the, uh, the number of vehicles and the age of the fleet. In Colorado, it's older than the national average. It's 13.7%. And um, so at the pace we're going on EVs, it would take a century to replace the vehicles, the gas vehicles and diesel litter on the road. So um, if we everything we sold was electric, it will still take us about a decade and a half to do it. Well, good. With that, we're going to have to wrap it up. But I want to thank you both. Very interesting conversation. Andy Daga and Momentum Dynamics, Tim Jackson, the Colorado Auto Dealers Association. Thanks for giving us your insight, your advice and what it's going to take to get the United States to really sell a whole lot more electric cars. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode.